So mine today might not sound as researched as yours, but that's because I was looking over my murder and this is going to sound really crazy. And I don't know if we want to say it on the podcast. Maybe I'll save this like little tidbit for next week, but it was like the exact same murder I did last time, except it was an SUV instead of a bike. Oh, and uh, you'll find out next week, but her family like went on Dr. Phil and accused their father of murdering her because her body wasn't in the SUV. They never found her body. So I mean, or maybe it was, but yeah, very, very similar. So I'm like, I can't do two murders that are that close in the same the episode after one another. <laughs> well, I guess that's fair, but I'm really excited for both murders. Uh, before we hop into it, how have you been? Good, but I don't know. Did you watch her Netflix thing? I watched a couple episodes, and I have started doing the the clothes. Yeah, I did my dresser over this weekend, and I love it, but I hate it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I just reference. want my life to be, I want it to be done. <laughs> for reference. I want that life. Jackie and I have started Marie Kondoing our places together, and she's definitely done more than me, and it sounds like it was a lot of work, but worth it? <laughs> yes. I've only done my dresser, and I've started to go through my closet, but I don't want to go through Josh's stuff, which I think is going to hold me back a little bit, because I'm reading her book, and she says one of the main things you have to do is, like take everything out and lay it somewhere so you see all of it because we scroll away things in so many different locations that you have to take it all out and then decide what sparks joy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, I'm pretty good at getting rid of stuff when I don't wear it anymore, but it's a good thing to pull it all out because then you can't be like, Oh, I want to keep this t-shirt because I, I don't have a lot of t-shirts and you end up saying that about 20 t-shirts. Yeah, that's definitely, that's, she says something like exactly like that. Uh, That's just a pitfall people get into is not, I love it and this makes me happy, but I don't want to get rid of it. So that's why you pull everything out so you can be like, I don't know if I want this. And then you get rid of it. Yeah. I'm definitely excited to have an organized house I just don't want to put in the work to have an organized house no I I feel so much I mean I'm still working so I just get these weekends now yeah and all I want to do when I get home is sit down and relax but it's just been so hard to sit down and relax and see a stack of whatever here or a stack of whatever there so yeah I want to organize and I want my house to be done I just don't want to do it (laughs) I just yeah and it's hard to because working nights um I work I work uh 11 p.m to 7 a.m granted it's only two nights a week but the night before I work and the night after I'm just out of commission so it's it's hard to do things like vacuum at two in the morning especially in an apartment uh yeah because my neighbors don't like like me or it. 
but I did find on Amazon this little handheld Bissell vacuum and I'm just going to rant about it for a minute because it is the best purchase I think I've ever made, especially since we adopted our dog, Jessie. She sheds a lot and she's got white hair. So oh, no. It's just everywhere and it's obvious. So I had to use a lint roller on my couch the last couple times I cleaned it because the vacuum wasn't working. And I, I bought this thing and I was like, well, let's just see if it works because if it doesn't, we can always return it and say, hey, this didn't meet my needs, whatever. It is the nicest thing for pet hair I've ever bought just like one run over the couch it, all the hair was gone and I was almost in tears and Ryan was looking at me like who the fuck did I marry no they don't <laughs> get it I swear that we just bought the skin cleaner <sighs> and I've been convinced trying to convince Josh for years that we need one and yeah. we've been talking about finally I got him and I was like look we have to we're going to have to rent one anyway to do that spot that was dirty or whatever. So let's just get one and then we can do whatever we want with it. And we got it and I love it. Yeah, I got I did my couch and like even the texture of the couch changed. It was so I feel actually comfortable sitting on it now, which is hard to do sometimes when you have a bunch of dogs in the house. Oh yeah. Yeah, especially ones that slobber. yeah i think yeah i think one of the dogs actually peed on our couch too at one point too Uh, so (laughs) i mean it's nice it's just peace of mind knowing that your couch and your surfaces are clean you don't have to worry about it seam cleaners are a great invention though like I, i don't have one with a hose we just have one for the floor and it's so nice like we live in an apartment buildings, but they're still being constructed. Mm-hmm. So a lot of dust and stuff gets in. So I didn't realize how dusty, like the floor smelled, even though it's a new apartment until I steam clean for the first time. It's just, it's so nice. I love it. Oh, speaking of stuff we found on Amazon, there's these candles called like, uh, let me see. I have one right here. Hold on. I got to tell you about it because I'm sure you'll like it too. They're sure. called. We have very similar tastes. Yeah. Well, they have. They're called pet house candles, and they smell really good. But they cover pet odors, like just the smell of having pets. Because, like, if you have a dog, your house is gonna smell like dog. It's just the unfortunate side effect. But this covers the smell so good, and I have them. It's not a sponsor or anything, but I have the Mandarin Sage one, and I love it. Like we bought it about a month ago. And it's already almost gone. And it's just, it's kind of spendy. It's like 20 bucks, but it was worth it, in my opinion. That sounds um, like, I don't know. I love candles, but actually burning them and stuff, I haven't (laughs) done it in a while. Because then you have to, like, watch it. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, yeah. I have a wax melter, which I think I like a little bit better. Yeah, I, and I don't blame you. I like wax melters, too, but I, I do just love me a good old-fashioned candle sometimes. Yeah, but, no, I I will say, like, actually burning a candle, the smell is so much, like, richer, mm-hmm. you know? I know I sound really pretentious when I say that, it's but just, that's it's the only richer to burn a candle. Just the smell is better. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know I, I've i really enjoyed it I'm kind of an Amazon fiend and it's a problem but you know 
You just can't beat some of the products they have. Anyway, do you have a murder to tell me? I do. Surprise, surprise. Amazingly enough. (laughs) Yes. Okay. So the murder I have for you today is very interesting, but it might be a little frustrating. But I'll get in. Well, why is it frustrating? Say that again. I can't hear you now. I accidentally pushed my mute (laughs) when I was moving my mic. (laughs) I said, you're about to find out. Okay. (laughs) I I figured that's what you said, but I was like... Thanks, Izzy. You don't need you don't need to leave me on that big of a cliffhanger. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. I'll be quiet now. Okay, so it's a normal day in Florence, Kentucky. It's a big stop for truckers that drive through. I imagine a lot of places in Kentucky are like that because there's not a lot of things in Kentucky. But this was kind of a, a hub for truckers. Now one of the people who lived there, Bill Stevenson, was known for just kind of being like super, I want to say Christian, but he ran a church out of a trailer in, well, okay, so he ran a church out of a trailer that was for the truckers that would drive through. So it was in a truck stop, right? And these would be driving through town, going through their destination, stop at the truck stop. And then if they want to get out and pray or whatever, talk to Bill Stevenson, they could just get out and pray and talk to him and chat, which I think sounds amazing. But on May 29th, 2011, he never opened the trucker's chapel. And so people kind of immediately knew something wasn't right because that's not, it wasn't like him. To not show up because from what I've read about him, that was kind of, kind of his life. I mean, if you're the type of person to open up a trucker's chapel, I don't think you're the type of person to just be like, I'm going to have this open every day except for today. Right. Right. And their church also noticed something was wrong because Bill and his wife, Peggy Stevenson, never showed up for services at Union Baptist Church where they prayed, where they worshipped. And he was actually a dink at a pool. (laughs) I said that wrong. (laughs) He was a deacon, and she was actually their organist. And she had been playing there for 42 years, and they never showed up. So church is their life, and that is a big red flag, it sounds like. Exactly. Yes. So a family member went to check on the couple with a bad feeling because, again, it was pretty obvious that something wasn't right. And they found the Stevensons had been murdered inside their house. Being murdered inside your own house just sounds like the worst time. Because it's supposed to be your safe spot. That's supposed to be where you feel the best and... For someone to come in and, and violently murder, well, I don't know if it was violent, but I think all murder is kind of violent. But for someone to come in and murder you in your safe space, it just sounds terrifying. It does. And I don't know. I really don't like this one um, for two reasons. One, 
the police have been very, very, very tight-lipped about any evidence they have, anything that was in the house. They just don't really want to talk about it too much. But I found one news article that kind of explained why. So the family member walks in, walks out, calls the police. They've been murdered. But when the detectives get to the scene, they find that they staged the crime scene. The, the family member staged it or the, the person who had killed them. Oh, okay. I was like, had staged to the scene. They said the bodies had been posed. Ew. Ew. Which seems ew. like really, really weird. You don't see that like really often in couple murders. Like, it's really, it's actually kind of a psychological thing for people who, for, I want to say men, but also people who kill like single ladies, if they're feeling really guilty about it, they'll cover their face is something that's really common. Or if they feel like the lady was promiscuous, they'll like splay them out kind of, they'll pose them. Mm -hmm. But that's not something that really happens with like couples who have been murdered. And especially for like, grandparents and great-grandparents like these people were in their 70s that's really really sad the police said items inside the house had been moved around and there wasn't one room in the house that wasn't staged so, so like, whoever killed them was there like... for i'm sorry so whoever killed yes. them was no, there sure. for forever it sounds like yes yes absolutely the police say the deaths occurred sometime between 1 and 4 in the morning on May 29th. But they only have the precise time to death thanks to a medical device implanted in one of the victims. So I think they're talking about like a pacemaker. The police believe that whoever killed the Stevensons knew them. Because there's no sign of forced entry. Always a big sign. The couple lived in like a condo and so if somebody had wanted to visit them they would have had to buzz them in so that not only did they knew them like the stevensons definitely had to invite them into their house neighbors were again since it was a condo right there and they said they didn't hear or see anything out of the ordinary and also just like you said the police say they think it's somebody who knew the stevensons because they stayed several hours inside the condo situating the house and inflicting post-mortem injuries on oh. one of the victims. No. So not only because... did they go through and, and, and stage everything, which in itself is disgusting, but they continued to try to hurt or inflict damage after they died? That's so sad. Yeah. Yeah, I, they were bludgeoned to death, and then I think what they're talking about here is they had some stab wounds, too. So very, very messy. But Detective Cox, who's the leading detective on the case right now, since it is a cold case, is saying it's not a cold case, but cold is in, like, quotations, because it technically is a cold case, but they say they're still trying to run down leads. But... 
they also have conferred with a psychic. And I don't know. I feel like when the police get to the point when they're talking to psychics about a case, you know that they have, like, nothing. Nothing, yeah. Because that's not something that's... (laughs) It's never going to hold up in court, you know? That's not... I don't know. So, the detective said it's old, but it's not cold. But it is cold. Um, And they say there's not really ever a motive. Because nothing was really stolen. It says the photos were arranged in the house, like, but part of the staging, to suggest the killer or killers liked certain people and disliked others, but it feels scripted. That's what the detective said. Okay. Um, The detective also said they both had to die. If only one half of the couple had been targeted, there was ample opportunity to attack each one alone. So it was both of them. But their nephew, fun fact, a lot of people are looking at because he murdered a 67-year-old woman a year after these murders to death. He beat her to death with a skillet and a pepper grinder. I mean, I would also be looking at that nephew. But it turns out the police actually have DNA evidence at the scene, and it doesn't match the nephew's DNA. So he is not a suspect. Well, at least with DNA, like, there's hope that it will get solved one day. Yeah, that's right. I I feel like this is one that has a chance of being solved. The detective is sure, sure. Is sure, sure. Yeah, I don't, that didn't sound right. Anyway, he said this one's not going to go unsolved. But it has been how many years now? Nine? So, yeah. Hopefully something happens from this quickly. Because yeah. I think this one's especially heinous. Um, there's a $50,000 reward for information leading to the arrest of the killers. Um, I have a phone number, too. So... If you think you know anything about this crime, please, please, please call 859-334-8496. I just, I really hate that the murderer felt like cocky enough to just wait in, wait around in their house for hours and touch all of their things and like go back and do things to the bodies. Like that's sick. That is sick. That's somebody I don't want in my society. So Hopefully they get caught soon. Yeah. Um, So I got two articles, one from the Northern Kentucky Tribune, an article by Mark Handel, and then one from the Inquirer. It's Cincinnati.com, the Cincinnati Inquirer. But this article was by Amber Hunt. And that's the story of the murders of Bill and Peggy Stevenson. Hi everyone, it's Izzy here. And if you didn't know, I'm the one of us that's responsible for editing and uploading our podcast. And I just wanted to let you know about Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast and 
Just to clarify, it's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. I like to use it because for me, it just makes everything so simple and easy. And it is the best program that I have found to help upload and find sponsorships. And it automatically distributes it for me. There is literally nothing that I have to do in order to get my podcast onto all of the listening sites. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You can record it right from the app, right from your phone, anywhere. It's convenient, it's easy, and best of all, it's free. So that was a really good murder you told us. I I understand how it can be frustrating, but I just want you to know that this one is equally, if not more, frustrating. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. And I believe that you researched this one a little bit as well. I don't know how far you got, but this is the disappearance and murder of Jacqueline Dowell. Dewall- oh, no. Dewallaby. Okay. <laughs> this is the murder and disappearance of Jacqueline Dewallaby. Hopefully I'm saying that right. So how far did you get when you were researching it? Um, not too far. So I uh, had researched it, but then it was in my to-be-done pile for a while. So mm-hmm. I've actually, like, I don't know. I don't have a great memory to begin with. <laughs> so I probably don't remember too many of the details at gotcha. this point. So this is why I tell you which ones I'm researching. Not any of the details, but I just tell you the names because... I can just see us, like, getting ready to record an episode and being like, this is the murder I have. And then the other person going, uh-oh. Can I tell you something else? Yeah. You put that list of five, right? Uh-huh. When we were talking about ones that we were researching. Uh-huh. And uh, I was like, okay, cool. And I didn't really read them. Like oh, I no. I did, but I guess I didn't. Because I got my group done, and I went back to look at yours, and that there were two in there I think that I had found that I had to like stop touching <laughs> what were they do you remember uh one of them was the boat one. Oh yeah that one's a crazy <laughs> one that one's my next one that one's one. really interesting yeah but I have that one like I'll three quarters of the it. way done thank you because it's already in my book <laughs> um so anyway this is the murder and disappearance of Jacqueline DeWallaby and in my opinion this is the a classic case of the police deciding who the killer is and finding evidence to support that theory instead of letting the evidence tell them who the killer is. So to jump into it, that's somebody else's saying to, I don't have a good saying anyway. So on the night of September 9th, 1988 in Midlothian, Illinois, David Duallaby went to bowl with friends after work and returned home at about 9:30 PM. Cynthia DeWallaby, his wife, stayed at home with the kids, and David's sister, Cynthia's sister-in-law, of course, came to visit and said her goodbye shortly after David returned home. Around that time, seven-year-old Jacqueline went to her room with a Christmas toy catalog to get a head start on her Christmas list. Her parents stayed up watching TV with their other child, Davy. 
David went to bed, the father went to bed, at about 10.30 p.m., and Cynthia followed about an hour later. Cynthia noticed that Jacqueline had fallen asleep with her light on, and she tucked Jacqueline into bed and shut the light off. So that was about 11.30 p.m. on the night of September 9th, and that was the last time Jacqueline DeWallaby was seen alive. Poor baby. Poor baby. She's seven. She's seven years old. Anyway. Yeah. On the morning of September 10th, 1988, David and Davy woke up early. They made sure to be quiet and not wake up the rest of the family, including his mother who lived in the basement. So it's the grandmother. David's mother lived in the basement. Okay. David discovered the front door was partially open at 7.15 a.m., but he assumed that his mother had returned home earlier and left it open. He didn't see her car in the driveway, but he assumed that she had left again. This was apparently a very common occurrence. Um, his mother had a group of friends that she liked to go drinking and partying with. So she would come home at all hours of the night and then go back out again. Um, she's living her best life. Uh, two hours later, Cynthia went to wake Jacqueline up, but discovered that she was not there. Cynthia thought that she might have woken up to play quietly somewhere, but was unable to find her after searching the entire house. David and Davy went driving around to find her, thinking that maybe she went outside to play with friends because it was about, um, I want to say, 9, 10 a.m. at this point. Uh, they were not able to find her, so Cynthia went back to Jacqueline's room and discovered that her comforter was also missing, which was odd because if she had got up to go outside and play with friends, she would not have taken her comforter. When Cynthia went to walk down the driveway to a neighbor's house, she also discovered that a basement window had been broken. Cynthia In called the house? Yes. So, and like, the basement where the grandmother lived, and a window had been busted. So they went through the grandmother's sleep sleeping area to get to the kid and out again? I, I will explain a little bit more, but yes. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, so Cynthia, upon noticing this, said, this is too many odd things, and immediately called the police, and the FBI uh, showed up, as well as the police, within an hour, and they were waiting for a ransom call, but no call ever came. The responding officers determined that the window in the basement had been broken, and had been broken from inside the house, as broken glass was outside. The dust and figurines on the windowsill were also undisturbed. Jacqueline's body was found in Blue Island, which is where their father had gone bowling the night of September 9th, on September 14th, 1988. So about five, well, four days later. Officers interviewed nearby residents and a man named Everett Mann came forward and said that he had seen a man around 2 a.m. the night ja that Jacqueline had disappeared with a large straight nose speeding away from the place Jacqueline was discovered. He also stated that the man was driving either a brown or blue 1979 Chevy Malibu. This is why that information was important. David Duallaby, the father, fit the description perfectly, and Cynthia owned a 1980s Chevy Malibu. Something else worth noting at this point is David Duallaby was not Jacqueline's biological father. She was a product from Cynthia's first marriage to a man named Jimmy Guess. He was the first suspect until it was discovered that he was in prison while all of this was happening. Convenient story. Mm. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> prison, huh? Those aren't secure. 
Anyway. That sounds <laughs> There was also a blue rope found with the body that both Jacqueline's grandmother and a neighbor's state belonged to the Dualabies as they had seen Davy playing with it outside. The grandmother who lived in the basement was also not home that night as she was out with friends and had not returned home until after Jacqueline was gone and the police were already at the scene. The final evidence that I wanted to mention was that Davy told police that Jacqueline was always the one his parents were mad at and she was always the one getting spanked. This is about as far as the police initially um, went with the case. Public opinion was dead set against the Dualabies and the majority of people believed that they had murdered their daughter, including police. On September... I mean, when your family has like the golden child scapegoat dynamic... And something happens to the scapegoat. I think they're always going to look at like the parents in that situation. I would like to point out that Davy, I think, was three at this point. But I will get. So you don't think he was what he said was saying was correct? I will get more into that in just a second. <laughs> okay. Um, on September eleventh, nineteen eighty-eight. Three days before Jacqueline's body was found, David was taken to the police station and given a polygraph test. He was instructed to answer yes to every question, but refused to answer yes when asked if he killed Jacqueline, which I would have too. Right. David and Cynthia Dualaby were arrested on November 22, 1988, and charged with Jacqueline's murder. The police believed that Jacqueline was a reminder of Cynthia's ex and that Jacqueline was impeding on the happiness of the new family, so they decided to kill her and move on. That's the police and public opinion, to clarify. In April of 1990, the judge determined that there was not enough evidence against Cynthia, so they dropped the case against her, but they continued with the case against David. A hair that looked like it had belonged to Jacqueline was found in the trunk of the Dualabi Chevy Malibu during this time as well. Well, okay. My hair gets everywhere. Yeah, if if you've been in a car, your hair is all over that car. Like, I think Josh has complained about finding my hair in his butt crack before. (laughs) Listen. I I wouldn't be surprised. Anything I touch, like, any. (laughs) Everything is surrounded by hair all the time. You need that Bissell vacuum. I don't know. It's got an attachment for crevices. Just stick that in his butt crack. He won't have a problem. (laughs) Um, Anyway. Uh, in May of 1990, after three days of deliberation, a jury found David Dwellaby guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to 45 years in prison for the murder of his stepdaughter, Jacqueline. After this conviction, Cynthia flew into action and started a campaign to clear David's name and to overturn the conviction. She was able to get several journalists on her side, and, and David's appeal was granted. In October of 1991, David's conviction was overturned for several reasons, and I'm about to go into why you can't decide on who the killer is before you figure out all the evidence. Are you ready? I'm ready. So let's go through the evidence against David Dwellaby. The first piece is the broken window in the basement the police had ruled was broken from the inside. It was actually punctured from the outside, not shattered, and the glass was removed by hand to provide a quieter entry. They were able to replicate this. As for the undisturbed dust and figurines on the windowsill, it was reenacted and proved that someone could enter through the window without disturbing either. The next bit of evidence was the eyewitness testimony from Everett Mann. After giving his initial statement, Mann's story changed several times. 
Secondly, Everett picked David's photo from a lineup, but the photo was forward-facing and Mann supposedly saw a man's shadowy profile from 75 yards away. At that distance, you would be unable to see any sort of detail, let alone a face. It was also discovered that David's picture was larger than all of the rest in the lineup, which you cannot do. Yeah, that's um interesting. <laughs> interesting indeed. <laughs> it's like twice the size. <laughs> which one was it? it. <laughs> yeah. Additionally, Mann had been rejected from police duty due to mental health issues, so it is speculated that he just wanted to insert himself into the case, especially since none of the other nearby residents had even seen or heard anything on the night of Jacqueline's disappearance. And this was an apartment complex. So if one person was able to hear it, everybody was. The blue rope that belonged to the family did not mean that a family member had been the killer, but rather that the killer may have just grabbed it from the family's garage as that he entered through the basement and would have had to have passed it on his way upstairs. Uh, Davy's testimony about Jacqueline being the one in trouble was given to police after a five day stay in a psychiatric hospital and as he was a young child, it is largely believed that he was led to say these things rather than being true. So he was five. No. Yeah. No, no, no. I didn't. A five-day stay. So he was he was three, I believe. And anybody that's been around a three-year-old knows how easy it is to get kids to say and do things. For example, dad and mom used to laugh all the time at Allie because she would admit to anything. If you remember the story about mom and dad asking her if she stole the Eiffel Tower... And she started crying and saying, yes, I did. I no, stole it. I don't remember that. <laughs> Have dad tell you one day. It's pretty funny. Uh, this, however, is not funny. I don't really feel like a three-year-old's testimony should be taken as seriously as this one was. Especially because no other neighbors or family were able to corroborate, corroborate this at all. So, the hair that was found in the trunk that was supposedly Jacqueline's turned out to not even belong to her at all. Uh, again, this is a case of fi police finding a suspect and making the evidence fit rather than letting the evidence find the suspect. The hair was not even the same color as Jacqueline's. Well, you know, they recently found, you know, all those forensic files or whatever where they talk about, like, the hairs under the microscope and they're like, the hair belonged to the suspect. <laughs> yes. So they found that's actually like a bunk science now. Oh, yeah. Like they can be similar and they can like dis... They can like clear people, but you can't say this hair belongs to this person anymore because they yeah. found out that's not and it's true in any case. It's more circumstantial evidence than concrete, um, which is, I think, how it should be. Um. There was also another suspect that the police did not follow up on, Jacqueline's uncle, Timothy Guess. He had originally stated that he was at an all-night diner, and two waitresses said, yeah, he was here all night. But after a segment on the case aired, an anonymous tipster said that his alibi was untrue. Upon re-questioning one of the waitresses, she recanted her statement and said that she had lied and said he was there all night because she believed that the parents were guilty and she wanted the police to focus on them. Yeah, that person should be charged. Oh, yeah, 100%. So should the other person that gave a false statement. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like vigilante justice. That's <laughs> somebody yeah. taking it upon themselves to, to be the judge, jury, and I want to say and executioner, but hopefully not. Yeah, that well, <laughs> and public opinion was dead set against the parents. So any stories you're seeing in the media are 
biased 100% because everybody had assumed that the parents had done it. But as I just listed out, every single piece of evidence they had against the parents was found to be completely false. Every single piece. So that's kind of sad. So if you're going to get in the way of a police investigation by giving a false statement, you deserve time in jail. 100%. Anyway, um, today Jacqueline would be 39 years old. The Dwalabies moved on and changed their last names. No further progress has been made on the case because a lot of police still believe that the parents are responsible and have not followed up on any other leads, which in my opinion is really an insult to Jacqueline's memory. Um, I did use another podcast as a source because she did a lot of research on the beginnings, which I couldn't really find in a lot of other, like I, I found that them in other articles just not laid out as well, but it was the last seen alive podcast and not to plug another podcast on our podcast, but she, I believe from what I heard on the podcast, she goes through evidence for a living. And that uh, sounds fascinating. I would it, love to yeah, that. I would highly recommend if you want more information on this to listen to the last seen alive podcast episode on Jacqueline Duallaby. She does a really, really good job. Um, I also used an article titled Jacqueline Duallaby Cold Case Reexamined 28 Years Later by Chuck Goldie, Christine Tressel, and Bob Markoff. An article titled The Case of Jacqueline Duallaby, uh, An Unreliable Witness and a Wrongly Accused Man. And an article titled Who Killed Seven-Year-Old Jacqueline Duallaby, The Case Remains Open and Chilling. So that is the story of the disappearance and murder of Jacqueline Duallaby. And unfortunately, I don't really think that there's any hope of this one getting solved. And it's incredibly frustrating to me because it is clear from the evidence and how it was debunked that things were not followed through on. It was, well, clearly this guy did it. Let's find evidence that supports that rather than let's look at evidence and tell us where it leads. Well, I think it's really a difference between the police who police as a job and the police who do it because they have, like, a love of helping the community, mm-hmm. you know? So one person's 9 to 5, they're like, let's wrap this up as soon as possible. And the other side is like, no, we need to find out, like, who really, really did this and be super thorough. Yeah. I, uh, it's a fascinating case for sure. But like I said, I just, I don't feel like there's really hope of getting this solved unless they take another really good look at um, maybe the uncle. And I really do feel like the Everett man, the one who gave the false testimony in the first place, should also be jailed. Like, I think if you are knowingly giving false statements to police, you should get jail time 100%. Especially to implicate somebody else, like, this is, pointedly. Yeah, and this is a seven-year-old child. A seven-year-old child that we will never know what happened to them because things were mishandled so bad. I, I mean, it was the 80s, so police work, of course, isn't as good as it is today. But it's just, it's very frustrating to me how this case turned out. And I really hope I did it justice. I think you did. Well, thank you. 
Um, if you like what we're doing, if you like this episode, please uh, review us on Apple Podcasts if that's how you listen. Um, you can also reach out and let us know what you think at ucsfpodcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at UCSF Podcast. We also love to get recommendations. So if you guys have a recommendation or a case you want us to look at or do on the podcast, mm-hmm. go ahead and write us up a quick little email and send it to UCFS. UCSF. <laughs> I'm tired, okay? It's okay. It's my fault. UCSF podcast at gmail.com so hopefully we get some more in that are really interesting i'm really excited about that we also have a patreon again at ucsf podcast and we are working on getting content out there to our patrons if you have any suggestions or if you'd like to support us because it gives us a chance to update our equipment update our audio and really just spend more time on it our patreon is at ucsf podcast I guess the takeaway from this episode is um, don't decide who the killer is before the evidence tells you. I mean. And protect your grandparents at all costs. Yeah, both of these were super old people and babies. They, old people and babies. They just get me. They get me. It sucks. All right. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>